Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, David Grisbowski, author of Mr. All Around, The Life of Tom Gola. David Grisbowski, author of Mr. All Around, The Life of Tom Gola. Why a book about Tom Gola now? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think the reason why this book should come out now, and I'm honored to write about it, is that uh, Tom Gola has a unique history in Philadelphia. Uh, he has a unique uh, kind of backstory, not just in Philly, but at LaSalle University. Everything he did was in the city of Philadelphia, from growing up in a, uh, you know, the, the Philly roots of the neighborhood system here in the city, to um, uh, LaSalle College High School, LaSalle University, played in the NBA here. He did everything in Philadelphia, and he succeeded in everything, too, with political, uh, his run in the political life uh, and political landscape. But I think, um, I know he passed, obviously he passed away a few years ago, but I think that people need to hear his story. And he has a unique story, as people will read in the book. Now, how do you know about him? Yeah, so um, I know about Tom Gola through uh, LaSalle University. I'm a proud LaSalle alum, uh, graduate of 2013. And um, during my time at LaSalle, um, I was a senior uh, in uh, 2013, uh, I followed the basketball team religiously. So I wrote for the co uh, college newspaper, the LaSalle Collegian. Um, I did LaSalle TV, which was like our TV studio there, so I was very involved with the program. Uh, I followed the team religiously, no pun intended, um, with the team, and uh, it came to my attention. I was doing a project once, and through a connection, someone knew Tom Gola, and he was sick at the time, and I said, okay, well, like, I want to meet Tom Gola. Like, why not? Um, so one thing led to another. I met Tom, uh, interviewed him for the uh, newspaper, uh, for like a two-part series, kind of like, hey, where's, what's Tom doing now? How is he health-wise? Um, and then one thing led to another, and then uh, here we are kind of having this idea of having a book in the back of my mind. Never thought really I had an idea for the book. Um, so then I did the two articles. LaSalle went on to the Sweet 16, um, uh, did the NCAA tournament for the first time since the, the early 90s. Uh, so kind of Gola's name was being brought up again, uh, kind of like his legacy, always on TV broadcast. You would hear uh, people talk about Tom Gola Arena or Tom Gola, the greats of the program. Um, so I just wanted to kind of uh, put one thing together. Uh, after I graduated from LaSalle, I um, went to the TV business, worked at two ch TV channels in North Carolina, one here in Philadelphia, and someone said, you should write a book about Tom Gola. And I said, that you're crazy. Like, why would I do that? I don't have the time for that. Um, and I kind of admired other writers that kind of uh, have a book and have like a platform or a personality, whether in news or media. And I kind of respected that a little bit. So I wanted to kind of do my own thing. Um, and uh, it's kind of like a winded answer, obviously, of uh, how I know Gola. But the same day I decided to do the book was November 21st, uh, I believe, of 2014. And November 21st, 1998 was the same day that the city of Philadelphia proclaimed as Tom Gola Day. So the stars aligned. I thought it was kind of weird. Um, but then it even went even further than that, that that same year, on February 21st, uh, 1998, was the same time that they uh, revealed Tom Gola Arena uh, in his name. 
and February 21st is my birthday, 1991. <laughs> so I, I thought the basketball gods were kind of telling me something to say, okay, I think you're destined to write this book. I know it sounds kind of cliche, but I really think, um, you know, I was meant to do this and to tell his story a little bit. What was he like when you met him? Yeah, unfortunately, when I met him, he was kind of um, uh, not really too, much, too responsive. Hmm. He was in a hospice care from a fall that he had back in the early 2000s. So he could speak a little bit, but it wasn't, uh, you know, the best, uh, you know, verbiage from him. Um, his speech was kind of limited a little bit, but he was still there in the head, obviously, you know, head nods and stuff like that. Um, and uh, when I met him in his room, you know, he was just, you would think it wasn't even a hospital room because his wife, Caroline, uh, who is a saint, by the way, um, decorated his room like it's his, a man's cave with memorabilia, pictures of him and Will Chamberlain. Uh, it was a very cool like, atmosphere for a uh, hospital. Um, but when I met him, he was you know, gracious and gave me a few quotes. I got as much as I could out of him at the time. He gave me a few winks, so maybe that was kind of my blessing to like, hey, like, nice to meet you, kid, at the time, because uh, it was you know, five, six years ago. So, uh, but yeah, unfortunately, he was a little sickly at the time. But um, I, I always think about it would be interesting if I met him you know, when I was younger or you know, obviously when he was healthier, I could maybe potentially have got more things out of him, but uh, everything happens for a reason. Well, lots of people have ideas for a mm -hmm. book and think they can write a book. So when you decided you were going to try to write a book in this, how did you go from that point to actually having the book? Yeah, so it's kind of a, a long-winded answer and process. Um, so I never thought in my wildest dreams I would write a book. Uh, I was always a TV guy, a personality guy. I wanted to create content, create stories, and be interactive. Um, so like I said, just, just creating the book kind of was hard at the beginning because um, I just wanted to get, make sure everything was right and accurate. Um, I know in books, uh, like we, we talked a little bit, um, I make sure that everything's accurate and correct. So if someone told me it was an orange basketball, but then someone told me it was a red basketball, I had to do my research and figure out what is exactly is right. Um, but coming up with the book uh, was kind of an easy process with putting the chapters together, starting from uh, his you know, childhood down to the day he passed away. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of autobiographies, so I, um, I respect people's just, you know, just the behind-the-scenes look of their lives. Um, I, and I didn't want to get too personal with the book. I just wanted to be, you know, straight and narrow down to his life uh, because I know some biographies kind of go a little bit to the right and left. And I just wanted to tell his story because I don't think people knew about it. And I just wanted to kind of just go right down the middle and just talk about his life. Um, and like I said, it kind of, the puzzles kind of went together from childhood to high school, to uh, college, succeeding in college, winning uh, national championships, to the NBA, military, and then next thing you know, I have you know 18 plus chapters and a ton of material to work with, and then coincide interviews and sources and uh, thousands of articles and clicks on the internet. How long uh, did the whole thing take? Uh, probably like five years. Um, I would say five years, probably in regards of not doing it full time, because obviously at the time. Um, I was in the TV business, and I kind of, this was like my side hustle a little bit, my side passion project. Um, so I started it actually before he passed away, November of 2013, I believe, and he passed away um, in uh, January of 2014. So I kind of, like I said, had um, some, some time to focus on it, on my downtime from work of not focusing on my career. So if you dwindle it down, it's probably a lot less, but on paper, it's definitely like five-year process. It was a long process. 
uh, stood at the same pages sometimes for quite some time now, and I'm really excited for people to, you know, give it a read and see what they think, and especially if you're, you know, a Philadelphian LaSalle alum or basketball fan, NCAA basketball fan, or a Philadelphian through and through, I think this is a cool book to kind of say, wow, like someone succeeded. So if, and someone, did. if someone watching this knows nothing about Tom Gola, mm -hmm. what should they know? Yeah, I guess uh, the elevator pitch of Tom Gola is he's a Philadelphia guy, uh, born and raised, uh, and he played basketball. Obviously, he's known for his basketball um, uh, persona, his basketball. That was his career most of his life, but he has a very decorated career other than that. Um, obviously, he got his fame from basketball, which helped other things in his life kind of get himself through the door, if you will, with connections and political aspirations. Um, but I believe that, um, yeah, Tom Goa just had just a unique life, and he was a unique individual who succeeded in a lot of the things he did. Um, and he was just a person, a kind-hearted person. He was a Philadelphian, kind of that blue-collar guy um, who worked hard, uh, grabbed life by the brass ring. Uh, I think his wife, Caroline, said that, told me that Tom, there's a brass ring on a merry-go-round or a carousel, and he's the guy that just held on to it the whole time and just went on for a ride and you know, through trials and tribulations. Um, throughout that time, he kind of just put his head down, worked hard, made friends along the way, and just showed empathy to people uh, in any way he touched. You said that he grew up in Philadelphia. He did. What neighborhood? Yeah, so he grew up in a Third and Lindley. His house still stands today um, in the Alany section of Philadelphia. So he was, like I said, he was part of that Philadelphia tight-knit community that I even grew up in. Uh, I'm from Philadelphia myself, so I kind of Obviously, I didn't grow up in the 50s, but, you know, Philadelphia has those close-minded neighborhoods, Irish communities, um, you know, Polish communities. Uh, he was a member of the Incarnation Parish, so he kind of grew up in the Catholic school system, learned basketball. And he could speak Polish when he grew up? Um, a little bit. I, I don't know necessarily if he did, but I know his brothers did, so is, I imagine he did as well. A is Gola bit. a Polish name? It is, yeah. Ironically, um, Gola was inducted or almost inducted into the Italian Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, unfortunately, they when they soon realized he wasn't Italian, they kind of <laughs> revoked that from him. Um, but yeah, so he has a kind of that Polish heritage, and I'm Polish myself too, so that's another correlation to uh, me writing that book too. Um, but yeah, he he was a part of that that close knit community, and I think that kind of you know taught him early, and he was like a mini star in his community, um, that Catholic school uh, close minded community. Um, and I think that's helped, that helped him kind of prolong his, or I guess start his uh, career in life and kind of like brought out his personality uh, in Philadelphia. When did he start showing some skills as a basketball player? Yeah, I would say probably in incarnation grade school. He was, I believe, not your regular sized height He was tall basketball when he was young? Yeah, of course. I forget the logistics in regards to the exact height, uh, you know, uh, number for number, but I believe he was maybe like 5'6", five, 5'7". In middle school into high school, so that's pretty tall for, you know, uh, eighth grader or um, anyone that's anyone in that middle school really. And I guess people saw that he was, you know, an all-around versatile athlete. I mean, obviously he did other sports first, but then when someone kind of honed him down to talk about and focus on basketball, that's when he really like centered in on one sport. Um, but I think yeah, he was just like had a good build and and one thing led to another and you know with growing up builds muscle and maturity and I think from his height to incarnation to LaSalle uh, College High School he probably grew like four or five inches. Um, he's, he was 6'6 six, six in the NBA so I think by 
high school, he at least had to be around like 6'2 or, or, or more, or 6 foot. So obviously, when you see a tall guy, you, you automatically assume he plays basketball. And um, I think it was just meant to be that a tall guy like Gola, who can run fast, can play well in a basketball court. So How, how was he as a student? Yeah, I mean, he was a great student. Um, he was he had a lot of brothers and sisters who maybe kind of helped him become a good student. I think, um, obviously, with having a big family, he was one of seven uh, in, in, in a close-knit community, um, and a third in Lindley. And I think that uh, he was a good student. He kind of succeeded. He wasn't a troublemaker or anything. He was, you know, kind of a, a close-minded, uh, uh, family-oriented type of guy who um, just kind of focused on things. And, you know, when it came to studies, he made sure he succeeded especially when he got to the high school level, obviously in the college level, when things are more serious, especially when you're getting looked at from universities and, and, and even high school uh, people, high school organizations and schools wanted his services too. So obviously he was a good student all around. Um, and I think that maybe helped add to his pers personality and his, his persona off the basketball court a little bit. Did he have a coach or a mentor in high school who, who mm -hmm. kind of Yeah, he did. Him? He um, So Lefty Huber was kind of like the main guy incarnation um, grade school. And he saw Tom at a young age and kind of groomed him into be uh, the start of his basketball career. So he saw him when he was really tall and said, okay, this kid has a potential to be a basketball player. He even came over his house and uh, played in a chicken coop nest or chicken coop uh, hoop, rather, that was made from the chicken coop kind of nest in the backyard of the home uh, and practiced with Tom from times and really took an interest to kind of uh, hone in on his skills to kind of develop him as a player. So it was, uh, it was one person who kind of helped him, you know, start his um, basketball career. It was definitely uh, Lefty Huber of the Incarnation Parish. Now, did all the students from Incarnation go to LaSalle? College, high school? Um, not I mean, necessarily. It's, it's high school, but it's called yeah. Let's say college, high school. Um, not necessarily. I would say that a lot of them uh, even went to North Catholic, uh, Father Judge, maybe other local schools. It's kind of like the same as you would choose a high school today. If if a school interests you, and it's in your confines of your neighborhood, I think it works out. But obviously, you know, when one school has a little connection to LaSalle College High School or any high school, maybe more kids flock to that. So. I would say a decent amount of students, obviously Tom went there, flocked to South College High School, but I think it's just part of just the regular, you know, college, or sorry, the high school kind of, um, you know, where am I going to high school next after middle school type of deal. It wasn't anything special or like special recruitment that way. So is it, when he went to LaSalle College High School, mm -hmm. was he kind of destined to go to LaSalle College he, then? Yeah, he was. So was it sort of decided ahead of time? Yeah, ironically, I mean, I'm not sure the relationship between uh, the two schools at the time, obviously LaSalle College High School was on LaSalle, University, or LaSalle College campus in the 50s. So you have to, you walked out one door, you're on the campus of LaSalle College, you walked another, you're in the high school. Um, so ironically, he um, wanted to, obviously he got really, he got recruited heavily um, throughout his high school days and he, he was close to even signing with Kentucky or even uh, uh, NC State, North Carolina State and even went down to North Carolina State and, and took a visit and was very serious about uh, joining them. But his mother uh, wanted him to kind of stay close to Philadelphia because what parents want to see their kid or go down. At that time in the 50s, you know, going down for a weekend to watch a basketball game was kind of hard to do compared to today. So she wanted to watch her son 
and see her son, you know, on the weekends and stuff. And she was very partial to the Christian brothers. And so I kind of, the Christian brother tie-in kind of helped Tom stay in Philadelphia. And I guess he listened to his mother at the time and said, you know, Tom, I want you to continue your studies with the Christian brothers because she was a very religious person. And I think it was kind of like a one-two combo. Ironically, it was LaSalle College High School then to LaSalle College. Was Tom Gola a, a basketball fan at the time? Like as a kid, did he follow the, the NBA? Or was uh, there an NBA? Yeah, so um, there's actually I found an article that he wrote when he was in the pros of who he um, my, uh, kind of mentored his game after. It was Howie, uh, Howie Delmar. Uh, he was on the Philadelphia Warriors at the time. And um, I believe that he kind of, uh, uh, I guess, kind of went after his same style in basketball after his with a, kind of like a gliding shot. Um, obviously, you know, when you see someone on TV or go to a game, everyone has their idols in sports and movies too. And, and I think that was Tom Gola's uh, guy that he kind of said, okay, I can do that and, mod and uh, kind of mottoed his game after after uh, Del Mar, so I think that was kind of his like kind of first kind of star with the Philadelphia Warriors to say like wow okay I like that I can be that and I have the skill set and the, the body to do that. When Tom Gola went off to college and mm -hmm. he was a, a freshman at LaSalle uh, what was the the world of college sports like at the time? I mean, who were the big powerhouses? The fr uh, you mean so 1950s first year at LaSalle yeah. College yeah so I think at the time it was kind of um, uh, unique situation because there was a big scandal that happened in 1951 with um, the the college basketball uh, kind of um, scandal, if you will. Different scandal, obviously, scandals still happen today in NCAA history. Um, in the NCAA today, uh, with recruiting violations and stuff like that, but there was teams and players that were taking bribes in the, uh, in the early 50s of games, of kind of like foreplaying for or, or forcing games to to happen on an outcome, kind of like betting against themselves, really, or, bet, or you know, taking money and bribes, pretty much. Um, so I guess uh, when Goa entered the, the 50s in playing in college, he was kind of saved the NCAA and the NIT and, and the NCAA tournament because it kind of had a, uh, an asterisk over it because people didn't take the sport too seriously. Um, and I believe that, um, like I said, the NCAA uh, tournament wasn't as big at the time then as it is now because it's kind of the roles reversed with the NIT. So it was the NIT was the NCAA of today. Oh, that was the big one. It, yeah, it was because I, it seemed to be that it wasn't, I mean, today in, in, in the college basketball world, you want to make it to the NCAA tournament, not the NIT. I mean, any postseason is fine, but you want to make it to the big dance. And it, like I said, it was quite the opposite because the NIT was the big dance at the time. Um, but I believe, uh, you know, Co uh, Gola kind of put college basketball back on the map uh, as a young guy. He's kind of like the first star of the 50s, in the early 50s, and, you know, playing in Madison Square Garden, which was the mecca of college basketball back then. Um, he really put a name for himself, you know, scoring, you know, 20, 30-point, 30-point, uh, 30-rebound games and really putting a name for himself, and people said kind of caught on to Gola. Um, and kind of, like I said, saved the program. But, you know, the big wigs were, you know, the Bradleys, the Kentuckys, um, you know, some of those schools that kind of just always had a good program back then. Um, and obviously they were, uh, you know, St. Bonaventure even as well. They, some of those schools uh, got in trouble uh, through that scandal, and uh, obviously they paid for it. And hopefully maybe Goa kind of, I won't say saved the day, but was a nice um, kind of uh, afterthought of the the bad with the good with Gola kind of 
making a name for himself and kind of saving the program a little bit. What would the game have looked like? Would it look similar to watching a basketball game now? Uh, absolutely not. There would be no three-point line. Uh, you might see some players at that time uh, shoot under, underhanded or even shoot a three-throw underhanded. Uh, the kind of form, the basketball form of shooting a shot is probably way off with elbows to the left and right and maybe uh, you know some other ways of shooting the basketball net. Uh, I believe some of the rules were different too because you could I'd necessarily dunk back then, but maybe the person was tall enough you can just toss into it and not def defect the, uh, the goaltending uh, kind of role that is today. But yeah, the game was totally different. Uh, the court was different. Obviously, it was the same basketball court's a basketball court, but it didn't have the three-point arch. Um, the the lanes were obviously smaller, a lot smaller. Obviously, that changed when bigger players came into the to the NCAA and the NBA. Um, but yeah, I'm always interested to see what people would think of the games back then. And I actually had to, uh, was fortunate enough to watch the 1954-1955 championship game with LaSalle. Uh, on the t kind of the game footage. Oh, it exists? It does, yeah, I have it um, exclusively from the NCAA. Um, uh, but yeah, it was interesting, had no audio, it was just straight. Uh, obviously, it, it, the game was covered on radio, um, but it, it's kind of unique to kind of watch a game like that. It's very much fast paced, the quarters were different, it wasn't, you know, two half times like it is in the NCAA now, or two halves rather, um, or four quarters in the NBA. It's, it was much more. You know, smaller than that, and and the time frames were maybe lower, like eight, seven minutes a quarter, or if not even some of them didn't even have quarters of time. No shot clock. Yeah, no shot clock at all. So you could hold the ball for forever, I feel like, and you know sometimes teams probably did that. Um, but yeah, it's totally different, and I'm always interested to see what people would think, especially younger people. You know, that's not that's not the game of basketball they are used to seeing. But I, at the end of the day, uh, ball goes through a hoop, and that's all that counts. So did he have a specialty? Tom Gola? Um, I would say his specialty was just rebounding. He obviously is the um, number one, the all-time leading rebounder in NCAA history with two, uh, 2,201 rebounds. So when you look at the record books, he forever will hold that, uh, that record. Um, if anyone ever came close to his record, that player would probably be drafted in the NBA uh, faster than, than ever, or maybe even go straight to the NBA or straight through the NBA from high school with rules changing uh, in the coming years. Um, but yeah, I would say rebounding is his biggest asset. Obviously he could score, he was a ball handler, you know, no pun intended, but obviously he was Mrs. Mr. All-Around. He could do everything from, you know, play defense to bring the ball down the court. He was a point guard, a tall point guard at the time, which is kind of unheard of. Um, but I would say rebounding is probably his biggest um, contribution to his game. Uh, when you have, a fa you know, he was a fast, he's a quick guy for his height which is kind of um, unique at the time because usually if a guy's really big, he is under the basket as a center or power forward. But he actually did everything. He brought the ball up. He played center. He you know, was a shooting guard. He shot the ball, obviously. But I would say uh, rebounding uh, is, his, is his kind of uh, mantra. Obviously, in the record books show that. Can you compare the, uh, the LaSalle College team the year before he was there with his freshman year? Um, a little bit. Obviously, like, it's... it's a little different, obviously, when a new player comes in, but um, when you when you when you kind of compare the numbers wise, I'll probably it's the same. Every player has their star player. Um, and in 1952, obviously, they won the NIT, the national um, the national championship in the NIT tournament. Um, but it wasn't really much different. I mean, the same players, majority of the same players came over 
from the 51 into the 52 season. So he wasn't necessarily the big star when he first I mean, walked in? He was, was obviously, he? because he had kind of like the, um, you know, the, the reputation from LaSalle College High School, and people kind of knew, okay, wow, this is a big wig who's coming here. He's like our, our, our all-star. And people kind of wanted to, you know, like see what the hype was about. And obviously with, you know, great hype comes a lot of responsibility to kind of deliver. So I think... Gola was the main guy in 52, and obviously the, the, the records and the stats and the numbers say that. Um, but even as soon as he, pretty much as soon as he stepped foot on campus at LaSalle, he succeeded in everything he did. Obviously in 1952, won the uh, NIT. Then in 1953, they, they got eliminated in 1953, but they still had pretty much the same team before. They just unfortunately caught uh, a bad, hot team in St. John's that season. They won the uh, the, the championship in 1954, the NCAA tournament at the, at the time. I have to read you something about sure. that. You write the 1954 NCAA tournament was the first nationally televised game in the history of the NCAA. NBC reportedly paid $7,500 for the national TV yes, broadcast they did. rights. I believe that that would probably change dramatically, <laughs> number-wise, money-wise, till today. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, that was kind of a cool uh, anecdote that I found in doing research in the book was... You know, like I said, uh, $7,000 and more for covering a national championship game is kind of unique. Um, but, yeah, like I said, and obviously I've, I've seen their money went to good use because I've actually seen the footage, and it lasted this long. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting to find little anecdotes like that throughout the book. Yeah, did he always want to play pro basketball? Uh, he did. Obviously, um, he, he wanted to stay in Philadelphia as much as he could. So when he got drafted into the NBA, they had a thing uh, known as the territorial picks. Uh, so obviously when he graduated in 1955, uh, 1956 NBA draft, he was drafted by the Philadelphia Warriors, and he was a territorial pick. So at the time, if you had a draft pick for your team, you could forfeit your pick to go after a local player from within your, the confines of your city. I believe there was a, a radius of how far you can go. But I would say maybe between like 50 and 100 miles of where your team's located to other schools. So ironically and luckily, Gola was in the city of Philadelphia. The Philadelphia Warriors used their territorial pick to pick him. They forfeited their pick, but they still get the rights to Gola. So when you think about it, Gola pretty much was could have been the number one pick overall if he wasn't a territorial uh, pick that season. But um, it helped out people, not only teams, but it helped out you know, kind of like the marketing strategy for teams because, you know, what's better than drafting a local player who has a lot of hype and has a great resume within the city to kind of help with ticket sales and stuff like that. So it's kind of like a perfect opportunity for them to kind of market Goa as well as like bring him onto his team as, you know, a member of the team. So I want to read about something else. I want to back up a little bit mm -hmm. back to 1955. Sure. And you're right um, about Alonzo Lewis, who was the first African-American player on the team. Mm -hmm. And they say, one day prior to the 1955 championship game in Kansas City, the LaSalle team went to see a movie after their final practice. And Alonzo Lewis says, I was the first one up at the box office, and they wouldn't let me in. Uh, he said, uh, I hailed a cab and told the driver, take me to the black pool room. I got to the pool room, and inside were Bill Russell and K.C. Jones mm -hmm. and other San Francisco players. He said, I was probably a better shooter than all of them. Um, so Bill Russell and, Ken, and Casey Jones, mm -hmm. two of the all-time greats, and they were playing college at the time? They were. So um, ironically enough that that was, I believe, uh, during the NCAA tournament when LaSalle versed uh, San Francisco Dons in the championship game. So it was Gola, Alonzo Lewis, 
uh, and the Salzburgs versus San Francisco, which was, had Casey Jones and uh, Bill Russell. And they later became teammates on the yeah, uh, yeah. Boston Celtics. Yeah, they stayed together pretty much their whole playing career. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it was kind of ironic that Alonzo would go to that, uh, to kind of meet up with them before the game because, I mean, I know if, me personally, I would not want to play pool with uh, <laughs> someone I'm about to hopefully beat and win a, a national championship. But obviously the color barriers at the time were kind of uh, unique circumstances uh, with civil rights and stuff. And uh, I don't think that really bothered LaSalle at all or even uh, people I, and historians I talked to at San Francisco Dons. It was just basketball. Obviously people had their, um, uh, their viewpoints at the time, but I think, like I said, uh, Alonzo Lewis was the first African-American basketball player at LaSalle at the time um, that didn't bother the team at all. And, and obviously it's kind of ironic to run into, like I said, the teammate, uh, their their uh, nemesis at the time in the national championship game, just playing pool and just a casual kind of hangout, nothing really more than that. Who were the San Francisco, San Francisco Dons? Yeah, so the San Francisco Dons were Bill Russell and that Casey the, the Jones. San Francisco State or San Francisco? San Francisco Dons, the University of San Francisco. Okay. Um, so, yeah, their, their Dons are their, you know, kind of name for the athletic department and their program. Um, but they were kind of, I would say LaSalle kind of was from 52 to 50 four were kind of the team and then eventually here comes uh casey jones and uh, bill russell who just dominated that whole season and it's kind of interesting to watch uh the championship game footage from the 1955 where he just looked like he was on the court by himself he was the tallest guy on the court um and it, there's actually a unique backstory in the book of of how san francisco kind of beat lasalle at their own game and goal at their own game so obviously you have bill russell one of the best players and I think one of the best champions of all time, obviously later in life, not just NCAA, but in the NBA with the Celtics. Um, but obviously if Goal is tall and Bill Russell's tall, you would think they would want to go one-on-one against each other. But um, the, the University of San Francisco um, head coach decided to put someone as quick as Gola but smaller to guard Gola. So that way Casey Jones could be, or excuse me, Bill Russell could be guarded by someone else. So that kind of opened the floodgates for Bill Russell to do this thing. Meanwhile, Gola, for the first time, had speed with speed with a guy smaller than him. He kind of uh, leveled out his playing field that championship game. Um, but yeah, San Francisco were a force to reckon with. They were a great team in, in 1955 and 56. And obviously Bill Russell is a main reason for that, but also Casey Jones is a big-time player who has a, had a great uh, NBA career as well alongside uh, the great Bill Russell, obviously with the Boston Celtics, and everyone knows his, I think, 11 championships in the NBA. Um, so Tom Gola was an NBA freshman in 1956? He was. So yeah. uh, how, what was the NBA like then? Yeah, so the NBA was rather small. Like I said, it wasn't that attractive in regards to the superstars of today, obviously. Um, you had, you had some superstars, some teams, and like I said, the territorial picks probably helped with that a little bit. Um, but you had guys like Paul Arizon, uh, uh, Walt Davis, who were members of the Philadelphia Warriors at the time. Uh, I talked talk to Walt Davis in the book, and he was a member of that team. He talks about how Gola was a very uh, imperative player on that team, not just on that team, but in the NBA that year, because obviously people wanted to know, okay, well, Gola... Can he transition his success um, in the NCAA and in basketball to professionally? Um, but I think the NBA was kind of the same. You know, you had your superstars, uh, Jerry Lucas, Tommy Heisen, 
Um, obviously, that was maybe later after the 50, 58 and the 60s, and, or late 50s and 60s, rather. Um, and, and like I said, Bill Russell eventually comes to the NBA. So I would say it was kind of like the start of Gola. I'm going to say it was the start of the NBA superstars, but he was one of the people that if you go back in time, you could say, okay, Gola was a, one of those superstars teams that, you know, as you got from the 50s to 60s, it kind of goes up from, you know, Bill Russell to Kareem. And, and you know, next thing, you know, keep going up to Kobe Bryant and Magic Johnson and today and LeBron James. So uh, the NBA at the time was kind of not too flashy, but at the same time it was the professional league at the time. Um, and then obviously Gola won the, the 1956 NBA final in his first rookie season with the Philadelphia Warriors. Where did the team play? Uh, they played at the Civic Center, I believe, or the uh, Convention <laughs> Hall. Convention Hall. Yeah. So, um, and I feel like everyone has different stories of of that. Of that, uh, obviously, you know, the Spectrum comes to mind later with the the Seventy Sixers and stuff like that. But yeah, they played. They played there. Obviously, they had a lot of home games. <clears throat> um, and in goal, obviously, kind of had that fan favoritism because you know, obviously, he's from Philadelphia, so people supported him more, I guess, his first year, first couple years, because he's a Philly guy. Did they draw well? I think so. Um, and looking at the pictures, and I don't know the attendance records, but just by looking at, you know, nights like they honored Tom Gola, they had a Tom Gola night uh, in his first home game with the Warriors to kind of pay homage to, you know, Mr. St. Gola, I guess, at the time that he's playing for the, uh, the his hometown team. Uh, but I think they had a good fan base, like any other NBA team that supported them. And uh, obviously lucked out with Gola winning in the, his first season in the NBA. Did you plow through a lot of old newspapers to see the, the, what the sports writers were saying about him at the time? I did, yeah. I've, I've explored too many newspapers. Uh, I've, I've, I actually kind of want to get a room and fill it up and just throw all the articles on the ground and see how much space it fills up and count them all because I feel like I've read so many. I can't even put a number to it. Um, but I think that's really important to kind of dig deep into articles like that because you I wanted to find things that weren't just numbers on a on a, a stat sheet or you know final scores and quotes I wanted to dig deeper than that and uh, uh, yeah like I said a lot of people said a lot of good things about Gola at the time but I did I don't want to kind of paint the picture of you know Saint Gola he, he wasn't a perfect person no one's perfect was any of the sports writers critical of him um, I would say not really I guess maybe it, they were just kind of you know objective to their own opinion because obviously sports writers have their own opinions, um, but I think you know they just called it down the middle of what he did in the court. Like I said, he wasn't controversial at all. He was never in trouble. Um, maybe I think the only thing that may have been I would say controversial is how much money he was asking for in his rookie season, whether it was X amount of numbers or the media said one number and then the team said one another number. Do you know how much he was paid? I believe it was maybe close to like fifteen thousand dollars his first season. Which obviously back in 1956 was a lot of money, um, and, and and ironically, in return of getting his contract as well, he also got a car uh, on Tom Gola night in this rookie season of kind of paying homage to, you know, the hometown boy. It's kind of I guess the same way you would see an NBA star now get an endorsement deal, but ironically, they got a car back in 1956 instead of, you know, there wasn't a Nike or Reebok back then to give him a sneaker deal or something like that, but. Uh, but yeah, I think I think uh, the critics were you know harder on on him as anyone else would, but at the same time they you know caught it down the middle and whatever they saw and 
Whatever you didn't accord, they just covered it the way it should be. I want to read a quote of you. You say, you quote Wilt Chamberlain mm -hmm. as saying, when I was growing up, you whispered the name Tom Gola because he was like a saint. Yes. You mentioned saint. What, what was it about him that caused people to think he was a saint? I just think he was an attractive guy. He st stood uh, six foot six. He had that persona about him that, you know, it's kind of when you walk into a room, ironically, you know, he had, that, I wouldn't say that political uh, stature, but he obviously did in his, later in his political life, but he just had that person, uh, personality for him. When he walked into a room, he kind of took it over, and you knew that he entered the building, or you know he was of some importance, whether you knew basketball or not. Um, I just think it's ironic that um, uh, the best, one of the best basketball players in the history of the game, uh, Will Chamberlain, to say that about him, because you would think quite the opposite of people saying about him. Um, and, and him and Will actually have a unique relationship. Gola uh, was very close with him, and Gola even spoke at Will's uh, funeral uh, when Will passed away. And probably my favorite thing is, uh, is a, it was in Tom's room, um, and I mentioned it in the book, and it's about a picture of Will and Tom later in life. I'm not sure exactly what year it was, but obviously they're, it's Will after the NBA season. And I was hanging up in his room in the hospital at the time, and it says, uh, to Tom... Uh, if you only pass me the ball a couple more times, I could have scored 100. Or some, I'm paraphrasing, if, if you pass me the ball a couple more times, I could have scored 100 uh, a couple more times, or some long line, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and he signed it, the Big Dipper. Um, Ironically, the mm -hmm. night Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points, Tom Gola would was not, not there. play. Yeah, I didn't actually know that, uh, the reason why <laughs> he wasn't a part of that game. Obviously, I think he was sick or injured at the time. But I'm curious of how much that changes the book if he was in that game. I'm really interested to see if he was part of that game and had recollections or, uh, because I feel like that's a, such a mystery game. Obviously there's, there's the audio call of that game, I believe by Bill Campbell, um, which I haven't listened to, but I, obviously I did enough research to kind of know that game uh, to a full extent. But I, I'm really curious if Gold did play in that game. Maybe that's a whole chapter by itself of just the mm -hmm. mysterious uh, hundred point game uh, in Hershey, PA. That obviously, have, you know, Will Will Chamberlain is known for that game and that picture with one hundred uh, written on a piece of paper. Did many of the games uh, get carried on radio? I believe so. Yeah. Did you get to listen to any of them? I did not. Um, I mean, there's some clips on YouTube a little bit that I, you know, kind of researched a little bit. Um, but I, like I said, I've watched enough footage and and done enough research to kind of listen a little bit, but not too, not too much um, radio call, because it's, it's hard to kind of access um, that a little bit. He uh, was drafted once his NBA career he started? He was. Yeah, he was. So he, he was drafted into the military in, at, after his rookie season in the NBA. Uh, so there's, there's a unique story. I won't get too much into detail of, of how he got drafted. Uh, people can read that in the book, but there's a story about how when he was in the, um, with the Warriors, the Philadelphia Warriors kind of, you know, didn't want their star player to go into the military, and rightfully so. Um, but at the time, you know, when you get called to potentially get drafted, it was a, a big duty and a big service to, to honor your country. So they kind of did everything they could to kind of get Gola not to get drafted because they had guidelines with height at the time. Um, so, yeah, he got and listened to the Army and uh, was a cryptology, I believe, maybe had that... Uh, title, it's a long title, but he was in the Army, um, and he played basketball while he was in the Army as well, and he kind of missed almost, I would say, a season and a half of games uh, to serve his country. It was kind of ironic, you know, in 
One April, he is winning an NBA final, celebrating, uh, living the life of a professional basketball player. And then a few weeks later, he's on a train uh, being sent down south to uh, kind of army boot camp to kind of serve his country. So it's kind of the, the, the test of time at the time in the 50s and, uh, you know, almost 60s. And so uh, it's a unique story to have that person go from, you know, uh, playing basketball to serving his country. How did the team do while he was gone? Uh, the team did fine. Um, they didn't win any championships. Obviously, um, they didn't win any titles or anything. But uh, there's actually teammates that have gave me that talked to me and said that you know, losing Gola to the military was like losing their right arm, uh, because he was the uh, you know the main player on the team at the time. Obviously, he was still young, but he still had that presence, and he was one of the big players on the team. Obviously, he helped them win the championship in 1956, but. You know, to just have a good, popular rookie in your first year, and then you say, okay, we've got to borrow him for a year and a half or two years, uh, kind of put the brakes on the team a little bit. And when he came back, uh, it wasn't the same team. He never won an, an NBA final uh, during his, uh, his rest of his career. Obviously, he won one, but even after he came back from the military, he was kind of just kind of, I guess, leveled out a little bit. He Will Russell and the Celtics had taken yeah, him. Thanks to, yeah, and uh, uh, Coach uh, Red Arback. Uh, obviously the head coach of the Celtics. But, yeah, I, I believe that, in a way, Gola kind of like leveled out, I would say, in, in the NBA. He, didn't, he obviously had success and was a popular player, but he wasn't as the main star, I would say, that he was in, uh, at LaSalle uh, playing against other teams in NCAA. Um, I want to read you this part. Now, at one point, the, um, the Warriors were sold. Mm -hmm. Philadelphia Warriors became the San Francisco Warriors, and you say in your book they were sold for $850,000. They were. Again, that's kind of like the same number that would be totally different today because some teams, and you know, uh, depending on the sport, are worth billions and multi-million dollars. Uh, but, yeah, that was just a, kind of a move that the Philadelphia Warriors made at the time to go out west. To Why become, did the owner sell the team? It was just kind of one of those things to just move out west because at the time I believe there wasn't too many uh, NBA teams on the west coast. And the NBA wasn't as big as it was then, as obviously as it is now. Um, and there was kind of some pushback from local teams like the Knicks um, and the Boston Celtics because they kind of wanted that Philadelphia team. Because when you think about it, you had that triangle of fans can come down from Boston, Boston to Philly, vice versa, New York to Boston. Big city did not exactly. Have an so NBA they team. kind of missed that opportunity to play a big city, a big market team religiously throughout the year, multiple times a year, obviously being on the East Coast. So for a season, they lost that. Obviously, the, the Philadelphia 76ers came back in the picture. It was just one year that Philadelphia had no NBA team? Um, I believe so, yeah. Maybe, maybe been, uh, uh, more than one year. Um, but I believe, you know, Philadelphia obviously wanted a basketball team again. It was a big market city. So the Syracuse Nationals obviously moved to Philadelphia area, which then become the Philadelphia 76ers. And then, obviously, the... Golden State, uh, sorry, the um, San Francisco Warriors eventually become the Golden State Warriors and kind of the evolution of the teams there. But, um, uh, yeah, Goa went out west with that team, uh, and I don't think he was the biggest fan of going out there because, again, his heart was here in Philadelphia. He was a Philadelphia guy. He, wanted, he had family here. He wanted to stay here. So he went out for a hot second, played a couple games, and decided to meet with the uh, team owners there, and they decided to... Uh, he wanted to move back home, so the uh, San Francisco Warriors formulated a trade to move back to um, New York, obviously not with the 
Philadelphia 76ers at the time, but he uh, then became a member of the New York Knicks, so he was kind of close to home. And actually lived at home, depending on the, the game or the, the practice, uh, so he commuted from New York to Philadelphia. So although he wasn't centrally playing in Philadelphia, he still was closer than, uh, you know, thousands of miles away in San Francisco at the time. When was he was with the Philadelphia Warriors and the San Francisco Warriors briefly. He was teammates with Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, yes, he was, yeah. So, like I said, Chamberlain, they were good, good, great teammates with each other. They had a great relationship, obviously. As I said, um, Gola spoke at Wilt's funeral, and they had a, a great relationship. Uh, Gola, as you mentioned, and obviously in some of uh, Wilt's books. And, and, you know, he was just like a, a good teammate, and they were friends well after their time in the NBA, which I think says a lot because in talking to guys from the era, you know, you had friends, and you also had great, great friends. You had colleagues, but you had people that you could actually call, you know, family. And I think him and uh, Chamberlain and Gola were kind of, uh, kind of close-knit. And uh, it would been interesting to see how long, if they would have stayed together longer, to see if they could have maybe uh, won championships together or if he stayed in Philadelphia or um, if maybe the Philadelphia 76ers became sooner and the Syracuse Nationals became the Philadelphia sooner. Maybe he could have stayed in Philly his whole career. But obviously everything happens for a reason, and uh, he followed suit out to West. You say in 1962, Gola approached Vince McNally, then the Philadelphia Eagles general manager, about the possibility of switching sports from basketball to football. Mm -hmm. Gola was upset about the move and the sale. The Warriors wanted alternatives to stay closer to Philadelphia. Football. Football, yeah, for the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, he didn't win any Super Bowls with the team. He didn't get a chance to uh, suit up fully with the Eagles. Um, but I, I guess that's kind of a, uh, an omen to Gola's popu popularity at the time because you know, here's a guy in the 50s who has a great build, maybe not like a quarterback build, but has a decent body size-wise that plays basketball that's six foot six. Okay, maybe we can transition that to put pads and a helmet on. So when you're kind of a popular figure, um, you kind of get attracted from all angles. And it wasn't just the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, the Phillies were interested in having him oh, try out scouted him as right. well. Yeah. yeah, too. So like I said, is. I guess he was a jack of all trades, and once you're popular, I say, hey, you know, Tom, can you swing a bat? Can you throw football? Obviously, it didn't work out for both, but just the fact that he got, um, you know, people wanted his services to play in another professional league, I think says a lot about his, um, his sports IQ and that he's, you know, physical and able to do it and has the, uh, the frame to do so, whether that be football, basketball. Um, or baseball, which is kind of ironic. But no, he never got a chance to uh, suit up fully with the Eagles or the, or the uh, Philadelphia Phillies at the time. I want to ask you about a couple people who he crossed paths with during his mm -hmm. career. One was John Chaney. Yes. The longtime Temple coach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so John Chaney, and, uh, John Chaney went to Overbrook High School. And obviously, when Goal was playing at LaSalle College High School, they played against each other at the time. Um, and they formed a great relationship. And John was one of the great, obviously, Philadelphia basketball coaches and one of the, I think, personally, one of the, uh, an all-time great NCAA basketball coach in college basketball history. This is personality, what he brought to the game with his, you know, 5 a.m. early practices that he would do at Temple University. But he was a player at Overbrook High School, and um, he played against goal, and they formed a great relationship. Obviously, when the public league plays the Catholic League and vice versa, you get to know each other a little bit, and I think their relationship kind of formulated through that as well as winning awards with each other with the Markman's Award, the Mark Words Awards, rather. And, uh, you know, I just think over time, through, uh, throughout life and after the NBA and his uh, stint in politics, 
um, he kind of just kept in touch. And, you know, it's kind of that close-knit community in basketball, especially in Philadelphia with the Big Five. And I think that's how they just kind of had a great relationship. And I think uh, Chaney had nothing but great things to say about Tom. And I'm sure Tom would say the same thing back about uh, Coach Chaney. Another longtime name in Philadelphia basketball, Fran Dunphy. Yeah, Fran Dunphy, uh, who obviously right now is uh, the current head coach for the Temple, uh, Temple University, uh, for the Temple Owls, but he actually went to LaSalle as well. Uh, he was on the team that Gola ended up coaching in 1968. Uh, Gola was head coach of LaSalle uh, College in 1968 to 1970 for two seasons, and Fran Dunphy was on that team. Uh, Fran Dunphy, along with Larry Cannon, um, uh, Stan Ladarczyk, uh, Sam Wittalek, uh, other names, Bernie Williams, uh, Fatty Taylor, Roland Fatty Taylor, uh, the list goes on and on of that great team of that season. Um, but yeah, Fran Dunphy was a member of that team. He was kind of a, a, a unsung hero, a co-captain uh, during his senior year. But him and Gola formed a great relationship, which were their friends after, uh, obviously, the time of when he left LaSalle. And I remember a friend uh, told me, I don't mention it in the book, but he told me that Tom taught him to be a gentleman and you know to always have you know wear a nice suit and to always have a nice pair of shoes on uh, and ironically I kind of see the same personality traits in Tom that I do in, in Coach Dunphy uh, kind of the same stature with him uh, both on and off the court that he's a great guy and I think uh, Tom was a heavy influence on Coach Dunphy and people obviously in the Philadelphia region college basketball see you know Coach Dunphy is one of the uh, another all-time great during his time at uh, University of Penn, obviously now at Temple. We barely mentioned his wife, Caroline. Yeah. Uh, tell me about her. When did they meet and when did they get married? Caroline, she is, uh, first, I guess I'll talk about personally. First, she is um, uh, my second grandmom, I guess, adopted grandmom. She's been a nothing but a great, uh, she's been a blessing to be a part of this book with me, and I really appreciate the Gold family and her um, opening up their, their home and their stories to me. Uh, but but Tom met they met in, in Wildwood, New Jersey. Uh, I guess like any teen back in the day when they went down the shore. Um, she was from uh, Maryland at the time, and they went down the shore every summer as long as the Goal family. They met through acquaintances and and friends, and you know met at the beach and the boardwalk. Uh, one thing led to another. They wrote letters to each other. Uh, Caroline says that Tom was actually a good writer, so I imagine maybe he one one day could have wrote his own own book. Um, because they, they used to write long-winded letters to each other as she went to school in Maryland. He went to school, obviously, here in LaSalle. Uh, they kept in contact with each other, uh, and then they got married in 1955, um, I believe, just right after the season, um, after the NCAA tournament. And, you know, I don't think Caroline was too equipped with sports at the time, and I don't think she uh, really understood the game of basketball. Um, but at the same time, I think she was supportive of Tom, and they had a great relationship. And uh, they, they just, you know, even just look at them at, old, at older pictures, they just look like a great couple. They just have that uh, kind of, like, vibe to them. Great people, great personality. They care for their family. Um, but uh, Tom and Carolyn have a unique kind of love story, and that's obviously mentioned a little bit in the book as well. I want to just briefly talk about the Iron Curtain. Behind the Iron Curtain mm -hmm. tour, that's 1964, Red Auerbach formed a team to travel behind the Iron Curtain and play basketball. And the team was Bill Russell, Tommy Heinsohn, Casey Jones, Bob Cousy from the Boston Celtics, Jerry Lucas and Oscar Robertson from the Cincinnati Royals, Bob Pettit from the St. Louis Hawks, and Tom Gola from the New York Knicks. And all of them, 
are in the Hall of Fame now. That's right. Um, that's, Quite a team. <laughs> that's a great team. And honestly, I think that's probably the dream team of the 90s before the dream team of the 90s. Uh, that was probably the coolest thing of, of doing research about the book is coming across that tour, was that I don't think people will actually know about it, um, which is kind of, I'm um, hopefully my, the book brings that to the forefront to maybe, you know, people dig deeper into that team. Um, but like I said, they traveled, all those players, Bob Pettit, Gola and such, they traveled to Poland, Yugoslavia, uh, Austria, I believe, uh, Egypt. They just played other national teams. Um, and like I said, it was kind of that dream team of this American team kind of teaching other countries the NBA uh, life of basketball and just having some fun in the meantime and playing national teams, although they never lost a game. And uh, rightfully so, because at the time, I doubt basketball was as big in Europe as it was in the United States. But that team, like you said, everyone on that team is Hall of Famers, including Red Arbach. And it's just really cool to kind of dig deep into that um, and to really learn about that team and where they went and uh, the anecdotes and like the really cool stories of some of the details of the games. And that's obviously mentioned in the book as well. But that was probably one of the coolest chapters that I found that I didn't even know about Tom Gold before uh, figuring out and, and putting the book together. When did he get interested in politics? So he, he got interested in politics pretty much, I would say, during his NBA career, but obviously it came to fruition probably in 1966 during his 1965-1966 uh, season, during his last season with the Knicks. Uh, uh, I believe uh, Billy Meehan came up to him, which w was the the main uh, Republican leader here in the city of Philadelphia and told Tom he should run for office. I think a couple of stories I saw that he mentioned, he met, saw Tom in his local grocery store uh, in the Bustleton section and said, Tom, you should run for public office. And Tom said, sure. So, <laughs> you know, when you have kind of that resume of good public relations on your name, the Gola name and your legacy, as well as just kind of like, you know, he was a popular guy. It kind of was like a one-two combo. Um, similar to celebrities running for public office today, they have their, what they're known for and then they bring it to another kind of uh, aspect of their next career. I think that was the case for Gola. He uses kind of his name was kind of a free public relations uh, run for him. And he was elected to the state house. He was, yeah. In 1966 he was and he was there for, uh, um, he was there for, uh, I believe, four years. And then eventually he became city controller with um, Arlen Specter in 1973, uh, which was a great campaign um, that that they talk about till this day of, of their slogans and their kind of uh, influencer marketing, I guess, back in the 70s, which is kind of unheard of. Yeah, David Garth, mm -hmm. who became a very well-known political uh, consultant, came up with the, they're younger, they're tougher, and nobody owns them. Yeah, that. And there were still, Republicans running in the city. They were, yeah. So Arlen Specter was running for district attorney at the time, and Gold was running for city controller. So Bill Meehan thought, okay, let's put these guys together on the same ticket. Not or same ticket, but same, you know, marketing them each other, same campaign trail, rather. And it was kind of a perfect combination. You have Arlen Specter, who had a great reputation in the city of Philadelphia with his political views and, and his accomplishments. And then you have Gola, on the other hand, with his basketball persona and name, and you kind of put that together and you have a winning ticket. And so you say before Gola took office, no one knew what the city controller was or what someone in that position did for the city. Exactly. So in a way, maybe Gola made the city controller's position, uh, uh, I guess, more popular 
are popular than uh, it was before, and it kind of, I guess people, yeah, as they were reading the book, kind of it kind of shows that because Gold wanted to show that as city controller, obviously with his accounting background, he wanted kind of something along the lines of uh, you know showing where people's money is being spent. Um, but I think, like I said, Gola had had the reputation to kind of put things together and and to sell himself. Although it didn't probably uh, take much to sell himself because he had that popular name and from basketball in the NBA. Uh, but that Arlen Specter uh, Gola kind of ticket in 1973 and, and 76, or excuse me, 1970 and 1973 were kind of a unique um, ticket that people, like I said, still talk about today and their slogans are even brought up that it was kind of unique uh, for that time in the political marketing landscape. Was he still active with LaSalle after his political career and his basketball career were over? Um, so, yeah, so he, during his, when he was coach at LaSalle in 1968, 1970, he was obviously. Uh, in the House of Representatives, so he left to focus on becoming a city controller, and he wanted to focus more on politics. Um, so he still always had ties to LaSalle, but eventually he kind of, you know, he wanted to focus on politics. And, you know, once an alma mater, always an alma mater, or, you know, once an explorer, always explorer, I think he held that to kind of his heart. Um, but he was still active with LaSalle, but obviously politics was his, uh, his bread and butter at the time. Uh, when he was running for state office and, uh, you know, city controller, and then eventually the mayor of city of, uh, city of Philadelphia. So this is your first book? This is my first book. Uh, are you cured of that, or you think you might uh, take on another uh, one? That's a great question. I, I honestly think I could write another one, and I actually am starting ideas for another one. Uh, I, I Probably along the lines of um, maybe another autobiography. Uh, I kind of like the basketball aspect of it. Basketball is my favorite sport, so obviously... Um, I might stick to that. Um, but yeah, like I said, writing a book has been the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's been the most rewarding. Even, the, you know, obviously the book is coming out. Uh, the book will be out in November. And uh, just hearing people's feedback, uh, I talked to uh, a classmate of, of Tom's in 1955, and he just talked about how he wouldn't be a man without Tom Gola as a, as a classmate. And that's the reason I write a book. You know, I'm, I'm not worried about book sales and uh, although they're nice, I want people to just capture the message and uh, kind of study his life and his career. We are out of time. We've been speaking with David Grzbowski. He is the author of this book, Mr. All Around, The Life of Tom Gola. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.